thank you uh, for hosting me. Not just Ray and Carol, but all of you. Uh, thank you for coming back tonight. That means a lot to me, and I hope it will be meaningful to you as well. A couple of housekeeping things I'd like to do. If the ushers could pass out uh, pens and a couple of pieces of paper again. I'm not sure if there are any people new here tonight that were not here this morning, but it's possible. So in that eventuality, let's everybody take uh, two pieces of paper and a pen, and we're going to do something similar that we did this morning. And we did have a pretty good response of people who would like to explore the possibilities of a sexual recovery ministry of some kind, a support a network of uh, committed brothers in one group, sisters in another, who could help each other here at New Haven. So that's a pretty exciting thing, and I want to give you that opportunity to, uh, to do that again tonight. A second piece of information I'd like to share with you, and, and that is uh, these books that I'm pretty enthusiastic about. They're called God's Design for uh, Sex. And it's an amazing set of materials. Have you ever wondered how to talk to your kids about sex? If, if you're a parent, I'm sure you've thought, how do we do that? Well, this is an outstanding set of books, and it starts in book number one, The Story of Me. It's God's Design for Sex for Ages 3 to 5 years old. It's put out by... Nav Press, or The Navigators, a very well-established publisher and ministry, and it's done so thoughtfully. The, the, the drawings and the paintings are excellent. Look at that little picture of a, a child in the embryo. And it answers real basic age-appropriate questions for children ages three to five. When they hit five to eight, they have a book called Before I Was Born. Now, my wife and I went through these books at age-appropriate dates with each of our uh, children, and it was a lot of fun, or I guess I could say it was a lot of fun until we got up into book three and four. I assure you, book four leaves out nothing. It's all there, <laughs> including some tasteful diagrams, so it's easy for you to just read the book with your teenagers. This last one is for ages 11 to 14. My son was 14, I think, when we read this book, maybe 13, and my daughter, Rachel, was uh, probably just 11. I can tell you this, she was horrified. <laughs> but it was an excellent teaching for her because where do you want these kids to learn about sex? You want them to learn about it from their peers? Believe me, their peers know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and what they do know is way skewed. So this gave us an opportunity to talk to them. And we have older children too, stepchildren, that would come and be with us and listen to be a part of this. And now my daughter my grandkids are using this set of books. I think you'll find them very helpful. You can look at them at the end of our session tonight and order them online from Navigators Press. I don't make a dime on the sale of those books. I just happen to believe in them. Now, something else I'd like to ask of you. This is a personal uh, favor, and maybe it will be of some uh, benefit and blessing to you as well. I'd like to know if you'd be willing to put your name and email address 
on this uh, clipboard. And I will add you to our weekly email from 423 Communities. I put out a uh, teaching on uh, healthy sexuality or something related to that subject matter every Monday. And I promise not to spam you. I've already talked to Ray and Carol, and they've given me uh, their blessing for me to ask you to do this. So you'll hear about uh, my book. You'll hear about uh, subject matter related to um, fighting pornography. And I think it'll be uh, relevant, interesting, informative, and inspirational, and certainly biblical material. So I'm going to start this uh, maybe with, uh, uh, I already have Ray and Carol's, but I guess I'll start over here with your son. May I do that? Would you mind? And if you really don't want to receive my email, I promise you it will not be spammy, and you'll get nothing more than once a week. But would you consider doing that so I could uh, expand our mail list? We have about 900 people on the email list right now, and we'd like to add uh, all of you if you're willing. Okay? So thank you. <laughs> okay, let's take a look again at our scripture text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read the verses again. And then we're going to talk about how to break the cycle of shame. We went into some detail this morning about how that cycle gets established. And I want to speak tonight about breaking the cycle of shame. Now, if you didn't bring your book, if you bought one and did not bring one, or if you don't have one, I'd like to, again, offer you a chance to receive this book. So the ushers are going to pass out the book now. If you don't have a book with you, because I will be referring to some of those pages, I want everybody to have a copy if possible. We only have a dozen left, so you may have to share. But uh, uh, please take one. If you'd like to keep it, it's yours at no charge other than $10. How's that sound? <laughs> so uh, if you earmark and write all over it, then it's yours for $10. If you want to just refer to it and look at the pages and the quotes that I'm using, feel free to do so, and uh, you can just follow along. I think it'll be helpful for you during this uh, time of instruction. Okay, let's go now to chapter 6 of um, 1 Corinthians, starting in the second half of verse 13. The Lord, however, will... Uh, excuse me. The body, however, I should say, is not meant for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is translated from the word in the Greek, porneia, okay? But for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do, not, do you not know that our bodies, your bodies, that is, are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you want to know, or do you not know, I should say, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one body with her? By the way, that word prostitute in the Greek is porne, or porne, same word from which we get porneia and sexual immorality. So this word is used regularly in this uh, chapter. For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. 
flee from sexual immorality. That is porneia. Flee porneia, any form of wrong sex. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually, that is, whoever pornizes himself, the Greek word is a verb, taking the word porneia and making it an action. The word is uh, pornuon or pornuon. Whoever does that sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from, the, from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. Lord, would you just touch this uh, word tonight and let it be something that comes from my heart and uh, delivers a anointed message to the hearts of these precious people here at New Heavens. I thank you, Lord, for the invitation to be here, and may the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This morning, as you recall, we talked about the cycle of shame, starting with that dirty four-letter word. Let's spell it together. P-A-I-N. All of us have some form of emotional pain under the surface. It can take the form of loneliness or fear, confusion, depression, anxiety, worry, panic, boredom, inadequacy, self-doubt, financial worry, hopelessness, despondency, rage, unresolved conflicts, childhood traumas, stressors of a variety of kind and conflicts with people. This all could be categorized as a black hole of despair. And when we touch that part of our lives, we feel awful. It hurts. And the thing about addiction is it becomes the salve or the balm that brings an instantaneous sense of healing, which is false healing, because while it works momentarily to consider the use of pornography or any form of wrong sexual behavior, it doesn't last, does it? And when we're done using, we all feel this thing called shame. And shame is devastating. So there are two foundational principles for our program that really work. They're bedrock. They're the two things I learned in my recovery about 18 years ago when I first started with one of my mentors, Dr. Ted Roberts, and his book, Pure Desire, and his other book, Seven Pillars of Freedom. I got into a recovery program that was much like 423 Men, and we patterned our ministry after Pure Desire. And anything I know about sexual recovery ministry, I learned from Dr. Ted Roberts, a wonderful, amazing man of God. He's, he's a pilot, a fighter pilot uh, from, I think he was a Marine fighter pilot. And, you know, they make these pilots kind of small, so he's, uh, <laughs> he's not a real big guy. He's probably about this tall. But he, if, he ever, if you ever hear him preach, don't sit in the front row because he'll singe your eyebrows. I mean, this guy is just powerhouse personified. And Dr. Roberts was um, an amazing man. And the two 
and he still is. He's still very active. He's no longer the executive director of Pure Desire because of his health, but he's still out there preaching and doing what he can. The two bedrock principles, foundational principles for our ministry, what I learned uh, through Pure Desire is, number one, I can stop bad sexual behavior, but I cannot do it alone. I absolutely need a community of people with whom to be accountable. And number two, my bad sexual behavior was not all about sex. Now that's an interesting comment, if you think about it. If it's not about sex, then why would I do it? My personal journey of self-discovery revealed answers that both terrorized me and filled me with hope and wonder. You may recall in the Chronicles of Narnia how Mr. Beaver is talking to one of the children and I think they asked the question, is it safe to be near Aslan? And his answer was, safe? No, dearie. It's not safe. It's good, but it's not safe. Aslan is a lion. And Jesus Christ is powerful. He's not the kind of God you want to fool around with. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the reason for my deliverance and my hope for all eternity. And these principles, while they created in me this amazing fear, you might say fear of God, it also filled me with a sense of wonder and joy and excitement. Being with Jesus and finding sobriety from addictions of a variety of kind is so refreshing, so exhilarating. The ride with Aslan is an amazing ride. So let's talk about foundational principle number one. I can overcome my sexual addiction, but I cannot do it alone. In order to uh, deal with this question about community, we need to first ask the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is more than just a floating head. And community is much more than just going to church or attending Bible studies. If I can join a group where I feel safe and I can say anything I want without fear of reprisal, then I'm a part of a community that is safe. I can overcome sexual sin, but I cannot do it alone. I'd like you to take your book, if you would, and turn to page 50. Who is Jesus? Before I can understand myself, before I can engage the journey of self-discovery, I need to know who Jesus is. Let's start at the top of page 50. Many Christians behave as though they consider themselves to be the Lone Ranger. And Jesus is a sidekick, like Tonto. These believers have an agenda. They expect Jesus to help them complete it. Jesus is an important tag-along whose input is valid and helpful most of the time. In a pinch, Tonto Jesus is there to bail them out. But as a rule, 
Lone Ranger Christians can handle things for themselves. They are the hero of their own story, not Jesus. We have a saying in 423 Men, you can overcome sexual sin, but you cannot do it alone. Many Christian addicts give lip service or verbal assent to that truism, but they're quick to explain, as I've heard some say, I have Jesus, and that is enough for me to get the job done. Folks, that's a very spiritual-sounding statement. I have Jesus. That's all I need. I could say that in most churches and get a hearty amen. But let's move over to the second paragraph on the opposite page, 51. Jesus is not a cosmic bellhop or a useful sidekick. He is the head of the body. Together, believers form the body of Christ, and Jesus is the head. You and I, friends, are the body. Go down to the last paragraph, starting with me and Jesus. Me and Jesus is not the answer. The real answer is Jesus, his body, and I. Me and Jesus is religious code for me alone. I want you to get this. I can't do church without you. I can't live in community without you. You can't live in community without each other. You can't serve Jesus without the church. And I'm talking about the community of saints, the holy Catholic with small c church. Let's read on. This is code for the I can do man's way of remaining isolated and detached from authentic fellowship with brothers who can help. Jesus cannot be separated from his body. Our Lord is not a floating head. He is connected to his people. Christ in his fullness is comprised of both his head and his body, his presence and his community. We cannot have Jesus without the communion of saints. No church, no Jesus. We will not overcome sexual addiction if we remain secluded and determined to topple porneia by ourselves and with our theologically inadequate understanding of who Jesus is. We need a loving, caring, believing community of people in recovery with us. We cannot do this alone. In the last sentence on page 52 in that section, we can overcome sexual sin, but we cannot do it alone. Would you say that with me? We can overcome sexual sin, but we cannot do it alone. Let's talk about community by posing first what it isn't. Some people have pictured community in recovery settings as an opportunity for men and women, or men to get together with men, women with women, young people with young people who have addictive behaviors and simply talk about their sin and leave it at that. Now, we do that in our program, but we are not traditional accountability. In traditional accountability, it's a shame-based model. For example, you snap a rubber band on your wrist every time you think of a naked woman. Or you throw a dollar in the communal jar every time you commit solo sex. I was raised with this kind of shame-based model. I was a Roman Catholic for the first 18 years of my life went to church every single Sunday, and 
beyond that, went to confession on Saturday nights. My dad took my brother and me to confession every single Saturday night. I think the assumption was we might not sin between the time we received the sacrament of penance and the time we took the Holy Eucharist on Sunday morning, if we were lucky. But in rea- and my, mom and da- my, my dad went, but my mom and sister never went with us. They were probably just holy by nature. <laughs> I don't know what, how that worked. But, but the sense was, all I have to do is confess my sin, and if I do, that's good enough. Now, the Bible does say uh, to confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Okay, but confession is just step one. I want to talk to you about what we call binge and purge. Uh, verses, or not verses, excuse me, pages 30 and 31. So would you turn there in the book? This is an important principle. The common binge and purge model. Purge means to purge yourself of sin. It's where we get the word purgatory. And you might recall that in Catholic theology, if you're not perfect when you die, you go to purgatory. And you hang out there in the fires of purgatory until all your sins are cleansed. And then you can go be with God in heaven. Sounds foolish, doesn't it, to even think about that? But that's how I was raised. This is a very common methodology for addicts who are not willing to deal with the reality of true confession with repentance. Confession without repentance doesn't get the job done. Let's talk about this. The common binge and purge accountability model is flawed and will not help the and hope uh, will not help and hope an addict will not provide, excuse me, the help and hope an addict needs. In fact, this accountability practice left unchecked can be an acceptable arrangement, an essential ingredient in the ritual of relapse. The man under the spell of pornea may wish to feel remorse for his actions. He might even work up a few tears. Like Esau, who was rejected even though he sought the blessing with tears. Do you remember that in the Bible? Or Orpah, who broke down and cried but still abandoned her mother-in-law. The practicing addict becomes adept at putting on a convincing show of repentance for himself and others, but he has no intention of change at all. Heartfelt displays of confession without real repentance undermines the recovery methodology, lulling the user into an un- to a comfortable state of counterfeit health. Now, here's where it gets real bad. The addict thinks he's okay, but he's not. If an addict can tolerate the belittling practice and dehumanizing experience of pleading guilty to his disgraceful behavior in group, he may subconsciously believe that he has thereby paid for his sins. Can you see how that works? I'll just confess, and it's so painful, that's payment for my sins. He becomes his own Jesus. You see how theologically that does not work? He is his own redeemer, having paid for his sin with the painful experience of confession, thinking that's all he needs to do, and it's not. 
The man in this state will not and cannot change. His weekly routine of so-called accountability and embarrassing self-disclosure earns him a free pass for another week of sexual misconduct. Think about that. Yes, he is the scum of the earth, and he knows it. And his group knows it. But at least he's being, quote, honest, and he is, with his accountability group. And the bonus is he gets to continue his dearly beloved addiction. This is a little strong, but it's true. Thank you, Brother Ray. We cannot create accountability groups that do not hold a person responsible to repent. Anything less than repentance is false accountability. Now, we do have to understand the reasons for our addictive behavior. So let's move on to the second principle. My sexual misbehavior is not all about sex. If you can figure out the reasons for your behavior, and it's really up to you to do that, you may not need a psychiatrist. You may not need medication. You may not need therapy. It's possible that all you really need is a ruthless form of self-disclosure in a recovery setting where you can tell the truth about your behavior, listen to other brothers and sisters, depending on what type of group you're in, do the same and learn from their experiences as they learn from you. It's a give and take experience and phenomenon. So I can overcome sexual sin, I just can't do it alone. I need men in recovery with me. Not false accountability, but real recovery. Secondly, my addictive behavior patterns sexually are not about sex. They're about the deeper root issues that lead me to want to medicate and feel better. So our recovery program is all about finding what the root issues are and dealing with those. In the very opening of the book, the very first chapter, first sentence, says 423 men is not about stopping bad sexual behavior. It's about finding out the reasons for your bad sexual behavior. You can do that, and you're on the road to recovery. But bear in mind, you cannot do that alone. You need a community of men or women to speak with about this. Now let's go to another point. We've talked about the two foundational principles. But I want to discuss something that is not real popular in Christian circles right now. And that is the concept of suffering. Suffering is a reality. If pain is a reality and we've talked a lot about emotional pain, then sitting with that pain and dealing with it and experiencing it and allowing it to have its impact in your soul is a difficult moment of suffering. I lost my wife, as I mentioned to you, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. It was um, August 30th that she succumbed. And I was with her as were most of our family. 
and she was on the gurney in our living room getting ready to transfer to the hospice bed. The doctors only gave her a few hours to a day or two at max left to live. She was in coma, uh, comatose condition. And um, before they even lifted her and put her on the bed, uh, she took her last breath. And I fell on her body and just wept. I loved her deeply. We were married for about 20 years. Pain is a reality. For the first year after I lost Adonica, I probably wept just about every day. That's uh, become much better now. It's about once a month now. <laughs> but I loved and still do love that precious uh, woman. I read a book, and it's really the best book on grief that I've ever read. And I read a lot of them that first year. This one's called A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. Now, Professor Sitzer is a theology and history teacher at Whitworth College in Spokane. And Dr. Sitzer was willing to meet with me because I had this goal. I have got to meet Dr. Sitzer. He understands my plight and my grief and my dilemma of having lost my wife better than anyone because, as he describes in his book, he lost his wife, his mother, and his daughter in the same car wreck. A drunk driver skipped the median and hit him head on. He had four children, three were left alive, one died, mom died, his mother died. His mother, wife, and child. He talks about it in the book, and he doesn't pull any punches. I'd like to read to you some of what he said. And you can probably see right away why I could identify with this gentleman. The accident, he says, kept replaying itself in my mind like a horror movie, repeating its most gruesome scene. By the way, he watched these three precious people die on the street before the ambulance showed up. I felt like I was on the edge of insanity. The next morning, I visited the funeral home and stared in disbelief at three open coffins before me. That moment, I felt myself slipping into a black hole of dread and oblivion. I was afloat in space, utterly alone among billions of nameless distant stars. Never have I experienced such anguish and emptiness. It was my first encounter with existential darkness though it would not be my last. I had a kind of waking dream, he says, shortly after that, caused, I'm sure, by that initial experience of darkness. I dreamed of a setting sun. I was frantically running west, trying desperately to catch it and remain in its fiery warmth and light. But I was losing the race. The sun was beating me to the horizon and was soon gone. I suddenly found myself in the twilight. Exhausted, I stopped running and glanced with foreboding over my shoulder to the east. I saw a vast darkness closing in on me. I was terrified by that darkness. I wanted to keep running after the sun, though I knew that it would be futile, for it had already proven itself faster than I was. So I lost all hope, collapsed on the ground, and fell into despair. I thought in that moment 
that I would live in darkness forever. I felt absolute terror in my soul. Can you, can you see the picture? Any of you who've suffered in life know exactly what he's talking about. Suffering is absolutely no fun. And it's real. And the reason I can say that is because it's a common experience. Everyone, if, you, if you're not suffering today, praise God. Enjoy the reprieve. There will come a time when you will suffer. How we suffer will determine our ability to win or lose the battle against addiction. And I don't care if that's sex addiction or gambling or a processed drug like um, spending money you don't have or unhealthy attachments to people and causes or a chemical drug like cocaine or overuse of alcohol or methamphetamines. It all works on the brain in the same way. If you're suffering, you have an opportunity to medicate that suffering, anesthetize it with some form, take the edge off the pain with some form of addiction or addictive behavior. Or you can sit in your pain. And if you sit in your pain, it's going to hurt. That's what real suffering is about. And it's the type of suffering that Christ calls us to rather than to jump to the artificial glow of our addictive behaviors, which is like creating a light bulb and painting it all glittery and thinking that's the same as the sun? It isn't. Now listen what happens. This is, this is where it gets really good. I discovered in that moment that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head, even if the only choice open to me, at least initially, was to either run from the loss or face it as best I could. Since I knew that darkness was inevitable and unavoidable, I decided from that point on, to walk into the darkness rather than to try to outrun it. To let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever it would lead. This is about trusting Jesus in the darkness, by the way. And to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow avoid it. I chose to run toward my pain. Man, when I read that, I thought, this is what it is all about. I lost the love of my life. Would it honor her if I went out and had a one-night stand with a prostitute to become united with a porne in order to satisfy my need for sexual intimacy? Would it honor the memory of my wife? Would it satisfy me? Would it help in any way, shape, or form to push away the pain I was destined to feel? Yes or no? Of course not. I had only one real choice, and that was to sit still and suffer, embrace the darkness, and head east toward the gloom. And you think to yourself, boy, this guy's not preaching a very happy message. I told you it was a little bit unpopular. But here's the good news. And he even talks about it in his book. 
if you sit long enough, the sun will eventually rise. If you're not chasing the western sky, but you're willing to sit in your suffering, do you think Jesus is going to forget about you? Not at all. He's created this cycle of life which creates in us moments of suffering but also great moments of relief. And if instead of running to my addiction, I sit in the darkness, embrace it, and become willing to face it, and I do that long enough, the sun will rise again. It always does. Do not give up hope. Do not quit. Do not chase your addiction because it will never, ever work. I want to tell you uh, an experience I had that I re- relates this point. There was a time not that long ago, maybe 15 years ago, I was fairly new in my recovery from sexual addiction. I had developed some wonderful relationships with the other brothers in my recovery group. We called it FMO, for men only. And those were in the days when Baywatch was a popular TV show, I think. And, of course, those they should call it Babe Watch because those girls were, you know, gorgeous in their little red swimming suits. And so we talked about this in our men's group. We said, you know, uh, when something like that comes on TV, uh, one of the guys said, here's what I do. I put my hand right here like this. So all I can see is her head. We thought, oh, that's a pretty good idea. So we see something like that, and we just go like this. That became our FMO salute. (laughs) We walked through church, and it was a big church. This was uh, Sunset Presbyterian, and I think there were a couple of thousand people there. And and we see another brother in FMO, and we go. And anybody could be watching us. And we knew exactly what that meant. We're in this together. So I was new in my recovery, and it was... uh, It was amazing because for the first time in my life, I was beginning to realize I didn't have to have pornea. I didn't need it. Neither do you. But I did have to learn to suffer. And here's what happened. I had a vision, and I I don't say that lightly. About 12 hours before that vision, which was about 5 in the morning, 4 or 5 in the morning, it was still dark out, and it happened to be the day after Thanksgiving, I had an experience with another human being that was absolutely dreadful. It was one of the worst forms of betrayal that I'd ever experienced in my life. It was a false accusation that rocked my world and hurt me to the core. Because it was someone I had loved, and I felt utterly befriended and betrayed. And I remember feeling that next morning. I couldn't even function that night. It was so, the rug was pulled out from under me. It was so painful that I came home (coughs) to Adonica and the kids and we're ready to eat Thanksgiving. Her parents were there and I couldn't even, I couldn't even have Thanksgiving dinner with my family. It was that bad. I went to bed. You know, we like to think we can just shuffle some of the stuff off and most of the time I can, but this was a painful one. This was, this just was so vile. 
and it, ju- and it wasn't even true, but it just hurt me deeply. I went to bed that night. I didn't uh, have Thanksgiving with the family, and Adonik was very understanding, and, and she um, asked me uh, later the next morning what had happened. But prior to that, before any of the kids got up, before she rose from bed, I went down, and as is my habit, I opened the Bible and began to pray. And I had a vision of two doors, and one door was sex, and the other door was violence. I'm an R-rated guy. My life has always been um, riddled with lust and rage, sex and violence. I grew up in a home where dad was involved in sex. Uh, He had Playboy magazines hidden under the T-shirts of his closet. That's how I was launched into this addictive sexual misbehavior pattern from about the age of 10 forward. Couldn't wait for them to leave home at night, leave me alone at home or with my younger brother and sister. I put my sister to bed and I taught my younger brother how to use porn. This was like the jackpot for me. But it created in my head a skewed view of sex that was difficult for me to shake for many years to to come. And so as I sat on that couch hurting deeply feeling the anguish of this betrayal. I, I thought, if I just open this door called sex, I can, I can feel better. And all I had to do, I just, I just cracked it open a little bit. True, true vision. I cracked it a little, and I looked through the vision, or through the door, and I saw beautiful women. And the moment I caught a glimpse All the pain of that betrayal vanished. I felt good. But I knew, because I was new in my recovery, but I knew where that would lead. That would lead to a place of darkness and false hope and destruction. I'd already done that in my life. And so I heard the voice of Jesus. True story. You can go in there or... You can come out, close the door, and embrace the darkness. But I'll be with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Think about that. This life in Jesus is not all uh, cherries and cream. Sometimes it is the pits, right? There are times when you must walk through the valley of the shadow of death and learn to fear no evil because he is with you. Jesus was with me in that dark 4.30 a.m. day after Thanksgiving morning, me suffering from that sense of betrayal. I closed the door and I stepped back and went into that zone where I felt nothing but pain and the presence of Jesus. There was another door. This door was marked violence. And I opened the door a crack and I could see myself 
with my hands around this person's throat. I wanted to kill this person. You still love me? I felt it. I'm not here to give you any sugar-coated message. Okay, this, this is reality. This is, I felt murder in my heart. And I felt my arms or my hands around this person's neck and I wanted to strangle this person. Or at least give this person a big whack on the butt. I felt such need for revenge. I was so angry about the mistreatment I had endured falsely. And Jesus was right there and he said, you can go in there if you want. But if you do, it's just darkness where you can endure the pain. And it's funny because the moment I felt myself committing this act of violence in, in my vision, I felt good. All my pain vanished. Anger has a similar way of releasing dopamine into your brain just like bad sex or any other addiction. It was amazing. I, I, so I said, okay, and I backed off. Now, I'd already been through anger management classes, and I'd really learned how to get this thing under control because my dad was a, a violent man, and uh, it, it didn't take much for him to say something stupid to us kids like, nobody talks to my wife that way, and he'd whip out his belt and start swacking us. I mean, in those days, and, and bear in mind, I'm 64 years old, so when I was a teenager, somehow it felt good to me to go to uh, the bowling alley with my buddies, and they saw bruises on my face because fistfights me and my dad would get into, and he was always bigger and stronger. And he'd, once, I took a swing at him while we're fighting, and my mother's in there screaming, trying to break it up. He ducked his head, and I hit her. And then he looked at her, and he said, look what you did to my wife. And then he started to beat me silly. Next day, I, I, could, I hobbled out of the house, and I had bruises all over my face, and, and I was kind of proud of it. That's how sick this thing was. And my, my, my buddies thought, well, gee, what happened to you? I think even back then, with the right phone call, I probably could have reported him to family services. I didn't know anything about that. And I wouldn't dare to uh, violate his rule in the home, although I always did, but I wouldn't have called the cops on him. I, didn't, I don't think I knew to call the cops. Today, you wouldn't tolerate something like that. And I, I never did that to my kids. I, but, but it imparted in me a spirit of rage that took a lot of work through a recovery program, much like 423 Men for Sex. I dealt with this in a recovery program many years ago, and it's not an issue anymore. And I can thank God for that. But in this moment, as I looked through that door and I saw myself with my hands around this person's throat, I thought, no pain. It felt good. But I understood that that's not what God wanted for me. So I closed the door, and I moved back away from the door, and I felt the presence of Jesus in the valley of the shadow of death, but I also felt horrible. It didn't feel good. I had to learn to suffer. Are you guys with me? Do you follow exactly what I'm talking about? We either cave to our craving or we press into Jesus and learn to suffer. We can't suffer alone. 
We're going to need a community with us. And our addiction is not about the addiction. It's about the deeper underlying issues, meaning it's going to take you a while in a recovery program to get better. You can't get better overnight. If you choose to participate in a recovery program like 423 men or 423 women and others, there's, there's plenty of them out there. And, and I'm going to be meeting with some of you uh, tomorrow, and we've made contact. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that again. If you haven't given me your phone number and, uh, and you would like to uh, connect, certainly would like to do that and give you an opportunity uh, to discuss possible next steps. And I've talked to Pastor Ray and um, Carol about that. And perhaps we can help by operating some kind of remote um, recovery program or help you identify or connect with one here in the, in the area. But friends, the stakes are very high. I want to I end with a um, reading from my book, and I want you to turn to page 118. This porn thing is a big, bad mother of all addictions. And hopefully, in these times that we've shared together this morning and tonight, you've captured a little bit of, of, of my vision to help us understand the importance of community and the importance of finding out what the underlying negative reasons are or emotions that contribute to our addictive behaviors. It's not easy. This is not easy. It will require suffering. And I tell all the guys that enter the 423 men program, prepare to suffer. Wimps need not apply. Don't play games. You want to be a part of this program? Prepare to suffer or get out. And it's funny because most men that come see me respond to that kind of stuff. Um, the stakes are high. I want to start reading at the top of page 117, just under step three. Now, this is going to be very, very convicting, and I hope as I um, end with this that you'll find some hope by virtue of understanding how important it is to stop the porn industry. I have a threefold vision. One is to get healed sexually, two is to help others heal sexually, and three, kill porn. I think we can do it. And I'm not looking for people to pick at the local strip club or uh, write their local congressman or put articles in the newspaper. That doesn't work. In fact, if anything, it makes you look like kind of a fanatic fringe. Here's all we're asking. Stop using porn. Stop using porn. You can't do it alone. You're going to need a community. You're going to need brothers or sisters in community with you to put an end to it. And in an honest setting, disclosing what you do, what is your practice of wrong sexual behavior, and then, and then trusting that that process will work in several years. It may take years of work. Figure out what the underlying negative emotions and reasons are for your behavior, and then put a stop to it. Make an ironclad decision, I'm not going to touch porn. <clears throat> in tackling a task as monumental as ending porn, 
We start with the premise that every one of us who ever previewed illicit and sexually suggestive material becomes responsible for its existence. Each time a man clicks on a pornographic site, he is endorsing it. The porn industry is perpetuated by the demand for it. It's a case of supply and demand economics. In his brilliant TED Talk, Rand Gavrielli stated, I stopped watching porn because I came to realize that by watching porn, I take part in creating a demand for filmed prostitution. Because that's what porn really is, filmed prostitution. Go to the next paragraph. Little girls do not dream of becoming porn stars, strippers, or prostitutes. These precious children fell into it through a set of unfortunate circumstances, were forced, pimped, or cornered, or so they thought, into a career path in the sex trades. Now, I raised four girls, and not one of them ever said to me, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to use my body to sexually entice me. I hear there's good money in that. Not one. No, their childhood dreams resembled the others. I want to be a princess. Or I want to have horses and take care of animals. Or I want to be a mommy, just like mommy. Why do good girls, little princesses in the making, become so-called bad girls? Here's why. Because someone lied to them offering attention, love, cash, freedom, stardom, or a hope of a life worth living. And these precious daughters and sisters bought the lie. Someone took advantage of their innocence for personal sexual gratification or the lure of easy money. The women of pornography, the objects of our lust, have job security because we too have bought the lie. Pornography doesn't hurt anyone. The porn industry did not create that lie. We did. You and I invented this untruth. We chose to believe that porn use was somehow more acceptable than other forms of pornea because we weren't hurting anyone by watching it. Why did we tell this lie to self? Because we wanted to watch young, beautiful, naked women engaging in sexual activities. It's that simple, folks. May we repent and forever reject the false claim that pornography is a victimless activity. Our porn use amounts to nothing less than participation in filmed prostitution. Just as Mr. Gavrielli said, somebody gets paid to pose, I pay to watch. We pay with our lives, our time, our energy, our creativity, our imagination, our integrity, and sometimes even our money. The hard but simple truth is this. Porn exists because we want it. If we didn't, it wouldn't. I know this is a challenging message. And I know you are a gracious crowd. And I'm bringing this m message to a close now. And what I'd like to do, with your permission, is to have a little Q&A. Do you have any questions or ideas or thoughts or things you'd like to throw my way? And I'll do my best to 
help field your thoughts? Anyone? What's that? Do, write it down. What's that, Carol? Yeah, just verbally ask. Just ask. That's not on the on the sheet on the sheet I gave you. By the way, that's no. I want you to verbally just raise your questions. This is just a Q and A time, open time. Are you stunned? Are you angry? Are you motivated? Are you surprised? Is there anything you'd like to add or question? Yes, Brother Ray. No, no, we've had 600 men through the program, over 600. Uh, right now we have about 150 guys every week in 12 groups. Yeah, we're working primarily with the a Jesus Church Network, which is our church at Westside, our church downtown called Bridgetown, so Westside and Bridgetown, and also a church plant of theirs in Vancouver called Van City. We also have a Foursquare church we're working with in Multnomah Village, and we have just been invited to come into Cedar Mill Bible Church to start... 423 communities in their church. And they're a fairly large church as well. So we're just now breaking in as we've just started our nonprofit uh, at the beginning of this year. So uh, I've met with lots and lots of pastors and church leaders. And we're just starting to break into uh, churches, giving them the opportunity to start 423 communities. And I've agreed to be a trainer in any of those churches to help train their men and women uh, with the help of our women's staff uh, to start these communities in other churches. If we were to do something like this here, it would require some remote access, of course. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very good. Yeah. 
you, you have a great pastor here. Obviously, uh, Ray is thinking in terms of what do you do to help instill trust of this process in the lives of people who could benefit from it. And you probably, through 26 years of ministry here, have met people in, in the church who could benefit from recovery uh, ministry. Uh, let's start by saying we do intakes. Uh, and you've all heard the question, correct? Would you like us to use a microphone for questions? Would that be helpful? Okay, so we didn't do that yet, but would you like to just pose the question again and we can splice out the part that's not heard? Whether it's this program or any other program, I've noticed that that it's difficult. It's easier to move into groups where people don't know you at all. Mm-hmm. I just I've known that over the years with other situations. But when you start your communities in your, like for instance, in your local church, uh, and, and like I said, because of the nature of the problem that is connected with the shame and the fear that is so deeply rooted in people because of the tendency to... uh, uh, Here's the part of the problem. People can fear, well, if I share these things with you, we all go to the same church, are you going to think differently of me now? Are you going to look at me like a pervert? Yeah. How how do you help people realize, in a redemptive way, that they're not a pervert? Because here, here's yeah. here's part of the problem yeah. in the church, as a whole. Yeah, we've not dealt with these issues. No, we haven't. We're, right. we're, we haven't dealt with shame. We haven't dealt with sin. We haven't been able to be open about problems. We deal th- with things. We teach things on a surface level. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and we've taught a lot about grace and identity, and you're more than a conqueror in Christ. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, folks. I haven't taught a lot about suffering. It's the first time I've ever heard on the issue on that we need to learn. Uh, I was thinking of the scripture that you brought out, that weeping may endure for the night, but what comes in the morning? Yeah. Joy. Uh, there's a place where we have to learn to walk through the night. Uh, Abraham, the Bible says, that he went out going but not knowing. Sometimes, I, and, and I've said this about our church, we need to become a, a no-shame no zone, uh, which is a safe zone. But a lot of our people have come out of different backgrounds where the pastors have hammered us Mm-hmm. on sin and you're on your way to hell and if you don't pluck out your right eye you're on your way to hell and <laughs> my god that's right he's right if i look at a woman unless my heart i'm going to hell and so and, and we've heard that message yeah it's ingrained in us and it's true but it's not equipped people to help them okay how do i deal with the root so i'm I stop producing the fruit of this thing yeah, in my life. Bad fruit. But but I just was curious. Back to the trust issue. How how do you 
How have you been able to help people get into a place where they're, they're confident, they're growing? I got brothers here or sisters in the women's group. How do I transition uh, when I'm afraid to open up? Mm-hmm. How do I do that? Well, that's a great question. And I have a few things I'd like to sure, say to address that. Uh, to begin with, uh, when you do recovery ministry in your church, particularly sexual recovery, uh, this has a stigma. This is an embarrassing kind of concept to talk about. So the first thing I do when somebody contacts me, and our church is really behind this ministry, uh, and I mentioned it's a very large church of between six and 8,000 people, so this Jesus Church Network uh, is huge. And for eight years, I did this volunteer while I was a realtor. Um, and I think just by virtue of the fact that it is a larger church, there's a little momentum that we have that, that you may not have because everybody knows everybody here. And I'm sensitive to the reality that that could cause some sense of fear around the potential of gossip. Right? right. So how do we increase trust? Uh, one of the things that I do with every incoming person, and, and the little prayer cards are in our prayer room when uh, guys come and they ask for prayer with this, or in our lobbies, and it, and it says, here's how you get a hold of 423 women, here's how you get a hold of 423 men, you can just take the card, and, and it's pretty innocuous. So they grab the card. We also publish this in our e-weekly, so they get emails about it, and they, they learn of it. When they contact this confidential line, all of those um, messages or emails go to me. I call them and have a five-minute talk and set up an intake interview. And in that intake interview, I manage their expectations. Nobody gets into group without first going through a portal called me. And they learn in that interview uh, and we go over five documents that define our program, including the confidentiality agreement. They sign a confidentiality agreement. I give them, I tear off the yellow, and they take that home with them, and I have a copy of their white page with their blue ink signature that says they will be confidential. We explain to them sometimes confidentiality can be broken accidentally without malice or ill intent and that there are times when confidentiality must be broken to protect victims, as in the case of a violation of law, because we're a mandatory reporting state related to the abuse of an elderly person, the abuse of a handicapped person, or a person with handicaps, or the abuse of a child. Anything like that, we tell them, or an impaired mental state, or they tell us that they might inflict self-harm. There's a lot to this program, and we've had our church attorneys look it over, and we're very cognizant of the need to lay a groundwork of proper expectations. So nobody gets into our program by just wanting to try it out. No, they go through a very strict process uh, that includes uh, this confidentiality agreement and a signed application. And I, I, I'm a little scary, okay? When these guys come to talk to me, it doesn't matter what age they are. A lot of our people are, uh, the majority of our people are under 30. We have a large, young person. So I'm considered a silverback there. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an old gorilla. And, uh, and I can be very strong with these kids. But they respect it. I think they look to me as kind of a dad figure or something. 
but even the older ones. We've had guys in their 60s and 70s, 50s, 40s, all of that in the program. Um, I'm strong with them. And I explain to them, if you violate the confidentiality issue, uh, principles here on purpose, and by the way, Ray, this is an interesting thing. Once they get into group, the, the, the depth of sensitivity to one's issues is so profound that what they share is so meaningful. When you see a grown man start weeping because he was abused by his cousin who was four years older than him when he was only 10 years old and he never forgot it and he never confronted the, the perpetrator and he told his mom and his mom didn't believe him and now he's 40 and he's got his own kid and he says to us, a group of 12 men, I've never told anybody this before in my life and he starts weeping. Oh my goodness. You see something like that these guys, they, you would have to pull their fingernails out or stick bamboo shoots under their fingernails, and they still wouldn't reveal the information. The sense of camaraderie and brotherhood and, and battle buddies becomes so profoundly intense and strong when a man shares at that level that these guys, as a matter of honor, you can kill me, but I'm not going to rat on my buddy. Won't happen. So... I can tell you that that's been my experience, but I always start with an intake, and I make it really clear that if you're going to get in this group, some guys will say, hey, I want to I check the group out, see if it's for me. No, you cannot come and check it out. You can come to an intake, and I'll tell you what the group's about, and if you don't want to join then, that's fine. It's America. You don't have to join. But if you do join, we expect you to be there every week we expect you to be committed to the process, and we expect you to keep your mouth shut. You don't tell anybody about what you hear in this group. You can tell them all about your own personal journey, but you can't tell anybody else about who's in the group. That's a violation of anonymity, nor can you tell them about something they said, which is a violation of confidentiality. So we really manage the expectation up front. We've never had a problem. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but a lot of these guys knew each other. Because while it's a big church, there's a lot of community groups, Sunday school teachers and uh, missional communities and Bible studies and all kinds of uh, uh, groups of young people that interact. So they know each other, even though it's big. And it doesn't seem to create a problem because of the management of expectations up front probably the best answer I can give. Yeah. Because uh, by law in Texas, if anybody comes to, for instance, me yeah. with a child problem, you got to report. We it. have to report it. Yeah. And that, by the way, that doesn't just apply to me. That applies actually to everybody here. Do you, do you know that? That if someone, like a child, there's a pedophilia situation, you are supposed to report that. I know you say, well, what about mercy and grace? We believe in the mercy of grace of God, but we're still to obey the laws of the land. And if there's abuse going on, uh, so, yes. Well, first of all, we don't one of the things I, I check this out 
we don't just jump to conclusions and we don't base things on ru on rumors. Uh, one thing that we do, and it's, it's happened to me one time, where I had to confront the person. You know, the Bible says that if you ever have ought against a brother, there's a biblical way you go to them alone. Uh, and that happens. Uh, and then I would tell our eldership that I've got to bring something to the law because of a legal issue. If there was a, like I said, a, an abuse of a minor or something of that nature. Uh, now, let, let's say we're talking about, I don't want to get off the subject here, but seven Just years. Just answer your question. I think it's 24 hours in Oregon. Yeah, seven-year uh, year limitation. What is that, seven-year? Statute of limitation. Statute of limitation. What if somebody is, is uh, uh, in fact, Carol and I had to deal with something uh, that was not part of this church, but we... It came, it, it came out, and uh, the father right now is serving a 33-year term for the abuse of his oldest daughter. Hmm. It came to our attention, and uh, he's in 33 years, of, and it's an act actually in Oregon, too. So, you know, and something else on this mercy thing you mentioned, yeah. I think sometimes the most merciful thing you can do is report someone, and then they can uh, face the consequence, and the victim, you have to have mercy on the victim, too. Mm -hmm. uh, is protected. So going through that process, I met a guy once who had um, sexually molested his daughters, and he, the first day I met him, this was in um, Ted Roberts' church, he was telling me, and he had a smile on his face, he said, I, I can't believe I did this, but I did, and I love my daughters, but I'm going to prison, yeah. and it's the best thing that could have happened to me, because if I hadn't been caught, I'd probably still be doing it. I heard this a couple of years ago. One out of three girls in America have been in some form uh, molested mm. before their 18th birthday. Uh, One out of three women, girls, all women. That was amazing. Yeah. Uh, something like one out of six or seven boys. We have a serious problem just in that area. Well, I know yeah. it's not about porn. I'm sure porn somehow comes in. Yeah, that's where we draw the line. We don't really uh, yeah. deal, with those deal issues. directly with that kind of thing, although I am a, a supervisor for um, uh, one guy who I, I went through the training to be a supervisor for a guy uh, in our program who um, has just gone through his um, mandated, court-mandated, uh, um, registered sex offense status. And I have to keep an eye on him if he's going to join our program, so we're in that phase. Um, but while we help men... If that's their issue, ch children, elderly person, or persons with handicaps, um, that is not our direct function. We will report. Do you uh, separate age groups even though they're the same gender? Uh, the only age group separation we do is for underage kids. So uh, 14 to 18-year-olds is a young man's group. And if we ever had an adult in that group, we make it very clear they cannot talk about their sexual history with young kids. can't right. be done. It's against our rules. And so we let young men lead young men. It's the principle of addicts help addicts. Uh, young men help young men. Women help women. And yet from t 18 on, we don't make any distinction in age. Right. 
Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Candace. Uh, that is all answered uh, in the afterword of my book. And by the way, if you guys wanted to start up 423 Community here, all of the questions that we've addressed, it's all here. Uh, this book does lay it out. It, it puts a biblical and philosophical foundation for recovery ministry, but then it um, has in the afterward pages of information about how to run a group, curriculum management, attendance, respect, um, and um, uh, all the... Um, that's at the end of the book. Yeah, that's at the end of the book. And then all the forms that we use uh, for intakes are all here as well. So they're all here. But yeah, a, a group just is typically about two hours long. Let's say it starts at 5.30. We do a lot of 5.30 groups because guys can get home right after work you know, or get to the group right after work. Sometimes they'll bring a Subway sandwich with them or groups might bring pizza in. But they always meet in the church. I want to talk about that in a moment too and why you might consider doing this in the church. But uh, they open by a reading of the guidelines. You'll see the guidelines in the back of the book. So they open with prayer. Then they read the guidelines, and they always reinforce the guidelines with each other. Then they usually go through each man's week, and they'll get about an hour to do that. And if there's 12 guys in the group, that only gives them about three minutes apiece. So if they share quickly, they learn how to focus, understand exactly where their violation was. They tell the group what their sexual sobriety line is, and if they were above it or below it. And then they try to answer the question, why I think I fell below they always try to get the why question answered. Uh, that takes about an hour, and then we have a break, and then at uh, the second hour, they'll go through a curriculum, and the leaders are required to pre prepare thoughtful questions that are not just yes-no questions, but questions that will stimulate thought and uh, depth of self-analysis. And then at the end of that, they'll huddle up for prayer and say goodbye. But they always try to connect with each other throughout the week to build community. So yeah, we have a very definite program. We're never more than two hours. We can leave early, but we can never leave at late. So we just try to respect that for the men. Yes, sir, James. So this, um, like Ray said, is very interesting. And I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. Do you have any practical or um, any steps that we could learn this because I don't think I've really been in our society. We haven't been we haven't been taught to suffer or take it on. Uh, maybe in the sports arena, you know, no pain, no gain kind yeah, of thing. That's different. But the real pain of life um, that we have walked through from childhood uh, to everyday pain that we endure today. Are there tools that are in your book or are there steps that we could kind of learn a skill on how to suffer? Because when I heard you say, you know, I'm going to suffer through it and just to go through the pain, my first thought was, I don't know if I can handle that. I mean, that's a lot of pain I'd have to endure for how long. Of course, I'm going to fail but there's got to be, yes, I understand walking, you know, with Jesus through the valley of the shadow. But are there anything in your book that you could give us that we could practice in learning how to suffer? Such a great question. Um, 
Chapter 9 is called Embrace the Darkness. And I'd recommend that you read that chapter. Uh, Most people look at that and say, whoa, darkness, that's bad. How can you embrace something that's bad? The devil is dark. But no, embrace the darkness of suffering. And um, I think the short answer is, James, no, I don't. I think to be uh, perfectly um, forthright and fully disclosed, I don't think there is an answer. I think it's a matter, from my perspective, of knowing it's coming and sitting with it and wherever that journey takes you with Jesus, that's where it's going to take you. I have lots of scriptures. And scripture, of course, is a profound help during the midst of uh, suffering. But I think the, the short answer is I don't have an answer. My wife, in a video uh, that our church did on her before she died, two weeks before she died, about uh, they loved Adonica and uh, the whole church. The, you know, the church was packed. There was a 1,000 people at the funeral. And uh, our pastors at all four services at one site uh, showed this video of her. And they asked her, how do you suffer? How do you deal with this? Because she, her body went down to 107 pounds, and she had blood spots all over her. And she was a beautiful woman. And I still thought she was beautiful right to the end, but, but she lost all her hair. She had blood blisters on her face and body. She had what, 107 pounds. It was just awful. And they asked her, well, h- how, do you, how do you endure that? And she said, oh, I wish I could tell you there's one, two, three steps. There just isn't. I just don't know how, but I just know Jesus is Jesus, and I'm, I trust God. And she was just faithful to the end. So I am embarrassed to tell you I don't think I have an answer. Thank you for the question. Excellent question. I, I just got to address that point too, James. And, and I, it, from, because I'm going to make sure that we understand something. You know, we've been teaching for the past couple of years on the, the importance of, of the grace of God and our identity as sons and daughters and ruling and reigning in Christ. And we're kings and priests, and we're, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Okay? We've been teaching that. Uh, it's been part of our fellowship. But uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't taught a whole lot about darkness. And I just got done reading a book by, how many of you have ever heard of uh, Jean Guion? Uh, Jean Guion wrote a book on intimacy with Christ and she talks about suffering she was a writer back in 1648 uh, out of the cat she was in a convent put in a prison and she actually has a chapter on this issue on the darkness and she said she said just like you said she used to pray that the Lord would take the darkness away, deliver her from the Lord, give me favor, give favor to those and deliver me. And then she started bringing out, she said the Lord started dealing with the issue of stop being afraid of the pain. Stop being afraid of the darkness and stop praying for deliverance from it. How many of you heard the scripture? And by the way, I'm not saying there's no... I agree with what uh, Dave is saying. There is no simple answer. But how many of you have ever heard what Paul says 
that I have suffered the loss of all things mm-hmm. that I might win Christ. I'm not trying to say this is the solution. But Paul realized that there was something he was gaining even though he was losing everything. Jean Guion said this, you'll never know true uh, gain until you've learned to suffer, until you've that. learned to hit the bottom. You've There are certain things that you cannot gain until you suffer. We, we, we just can't, what, what I'm trying to say is this, we just can't teach on the subject of our identity. Our identity as sons and daughters, breaking the orphan spirit, all of that's so important. We're rulers, we're kings, we're priests unto God. That's part of the word of God. Uh, we've been raised, seated with Christ in, in, in heavenly places, which is a place of victory and dominion and given spiritual authority. But I, was, I, I, I felt the Lord give me a word the other day on Abraham. Remember when God gave his first covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 about the promise of a great name, great nation. I will make you the head and you'll be blessed and those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed and all of these things. And God began to show me something about greatness. People that go through Joseph had a great two two great visions, and then he went through the path of pain. Mm-hmm. The okay. rejection of his brothers, put in Potiphar's house, yet retained his integrity, and was still betrayed, betrayed, betrayed for sixteen, eighteen years. That's right. Until the day he was brought. But I, I've often asked. I said, Lord, what preserved that guy? It was like a great question, James. How, how do we, how do we maintain our victory through that? One writer wrote this: is that he held on to the dream. He held on to the dream, you know, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who endured the cross. There's some things that we just have to endure. By the way, there's going to be things that you walk through that no one will be able to understand. That's true. And we can't, we cannot try to fix other people's problems uh, by just giving them scripture, actually. Does anyone else have a question or thought? My. Why don't you use the mic, then they can tape it, too. It's just, um, there's no kind of action that you're taking against the industry, like, There'll be no, do you, or do you know of some in uh, group, an organization that is going to say, hey, we're, we're going to fight the porn industry? The best one I know of out there, and this is not our exact niche, um, my philosophy is get myself healed sexually, one, help others get healed sexually, two, and three, let's kill the porn industry. And the way we do it isn't through writing letters and taking uh, political um, um, postures and all of that is just by simply helping one man at a time with the help of one recovering addict at a time stop this uh, uh, de- demand for pornography by choosing myself not to use it and telling every man I can and every woman out there I can to stop using it. And that's how we look at this. But 
there's other groups that have a, maybe a stronger approach. And one of the best ones I've heard of is Fight the New Drug. Have you guys ever seen Fight the New Drug on, uh, online? I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It really has a <clears throat> tremendous appeal to young people. And it, they have T-shirts and, and uh, pithy sayings and amazing um, uh, Twitter feeds and all kinds of uh, Facebook posts and really good material. I quote Fight the New Drug quite a bit in Chapter 4 of the book. Uh, I think that's the best organization I know that's really trying to put an end to it. Our uh, approach is just help addicts stop using, and hopefully that'll drive the demand and put an end to it. Maybe not this lifetime, but in some lifetime to come. And the, and the other thing I wanted to mention to Ray was uh, in this church, Ray, um, we're taught to fight evil, tear down strongholds, and, and the things that we're taught actually go against not just pornography it goes against every everything that faces us out there so porn is just one mm -hmm. one of the many ways like we have the sozo thing bringing us closer to the lord so that we can do a uh, better battle yeah that's good that's a good word yes sheree yeah. with this such a sensitive subject do yeah. you do like family? Do you recommend like family addresses once people are working through the process? How do you deal with it when it comes to families? Because you know if it's affecting one person in a family, there's a generational thing that's been going on where it's going to affect other people in the family, whether it's not directly you and your parents or you and an uncle. It could be cousins. It could be, you know, nieces or nephews or whatever the case is. Yeah. Well, what a great question, Sheree. Uh, we teach our men, and we go with this in the intake, it's in the book, and we remind the guys uh, through the weekly reading of guidelines that one of our guidelines is that if you're married or um, engaged, you will share your history of uh, your sexual history with your wife or fiance. Uh, you'll do this early in the recovery process so as not to dawdle because procrastination on this kind of a disclosure with your most significant other person in life uh, only helps to create mistrust. However, we recommend that they wait long enough to get some stabilization. So if a guy starts our program and he's been having an affair or he did some inappropriate stuff uh, and he hasn't confessed to her yet and she's not sure why he's going to this group, um, he goes and after he has achieved a level of stability so he can give her some hope that when he discloses to her, uh, she can believe, while she's in a lot of pain, she can at least believe, okay, he's in this recovery program and he hasn't acted out sexually uh, since he started and we're proud of him. So, okay, we'll, uh, it might take her a while, but she'll come on board and typically support that endeavor. Uh, now, you have, this is a family systems problem. This isn't just the man's problem. This is the man, the wife, his family, and uh, it has a ripple effect. And I think that's what, you were getting at. Um, the men uh, in our program, we recommend that they not only confess to their wife, but at an age-appropriate level, they confess to their children. If they have teenage boys and, and, and girls and he was sexually unfaithful to his wife, um, he needs to tell those kids. They need to understand what mom has gone through. And uh, so it's really important uh, at some point of stability that he muster the guts to tell the truth 
with the support and help and counsel of his recovery group uh, to his wife and uh, the significant people in his life, which of course means his immediate family of origin or his, his family that he oversees and, and those children. And then the next question, I was looking, kind of flipping through the book, yeah. and it says that there are like 12, it looks like there's 12 weeks of going through the program. Is that it, and then you're graduated, or is there oh. still something afterwards? Hey, great question, because this is so critical, uh, and there's so much to this program that, um, uh, by the way, I, uh, I'll be connecting with some of you men, and I'd like to just take a moment before I answer that question to have all of you now uh, take your piece of paper, Okay, you all have a piece of paper, right? And if you don't, raise your hand, and a herald will get you a piece of paper. Okay, every single one of you, I want you to do this for me. Okay, if you don't have a piece of paper, raise your hand. This does not mean you need help or that you're going to be a part of the program. It just means that uh, those who may want to be a part of the program cannot uh, feel comfortable writing that down on a piece of paper if you're not also writing something down. So every one of you, just take a moment, like we did this morning, and write something on the piece of paper. If you're interested in getting more information, we are going to be meeting uh, here soon. I delayed my departure till Tuesday, so Ray and I can meet with the men, and uh, uh, Carol and I will meet with the women uh, uh, tomorrow, and we and and we can make that happen. So if you are interested in in exploring more of that with us, please write down your name and phone number on this piece of paper. If you're not, write down any word you want. Write hi or great job Dave or lousy job Dave or whatever you want to say, okay? But write something because then everybody's participating, okay? So let's, let's all do that. Even the ones that were here this morning and already did it, do it again to make those who may not have been here this morning feel comfortable in this process. Do you understand why I'm asking you to do that? That makes sense to you? Say yes. Just Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. As soon as you've done that, pass them. Uh, 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 Harold will pick them up. He's, he's got, and um, just drop it in the, uh, the basket there. Okay, so in answer to your question, uh, do, do you graduate from this program? Uh, the way we look at this, and I know there are people who actually do get healed instantaneously from uh, sex addiction. At least I've, I've heard that a few times. I think I believe it, but I'm not absolutely certain. What I, what I fundamentally believe is that this takes the renewal of the mind, and that's, of course, a biblical concept. And they have become entrenched in their porn use over the course of many years. You cannot expect, if a man's in his 30s after two decades of porn use from the time he was 10 until his current age, you know, 25 years he's been doing this, he can't come into a recovery program and say, hey, can you pray for me? And bang, it's done. We think that's the atypical uh, scenario. Normally, it takes years of hard recovery work because, again, it's not about sex. It's about all the underlying issues that drove him to that place in the first place. Okay? It's not, he just, it's not that he likes sex. It's, it's, it, you think about this for a minute. Did, did the woman gamble away her life savings and her children's college funds because she likes to gamble? Did, did the uh, uh, man uh, kill the pedestrian because he likes to drink and drive? 
does, did, did the, the guy who sees a prostitute actually have sex with her because he likes sex? Of course not. They did this because they're addicted and there's some kind of an issue. And they've got to get to the bottom of whatever that issue is. And that's what our recovery program is about. Not the act, but the, but the underlying issues. So the answer to your question is a long answer. And I apologize for that, Sheree. But it takes time. So this is just, my, my book is a 12-week course. But when they're done with this book, they go to the next book. They go to Ted Roberts' book. They go to um, a Genesis process. They go to, and you can see the books that we use on the application on um, page 140. So there's a lot of great books out there. And the guys stay in the program as long as they need to because it's not curriculum-driven. Guy can come in, he can be, think we can be there near the end of my book, and they can start right there because it's the culture of the group that is most important, not the curriculum. They'll get the curriculum by osmosis if they continue to read good books about the subject. That'll give them brain food. But over the course of time, they, they got to deal with their issues in a community setting, and they do so, and um, usually takes about three to five years. That's, that's the bad news. Don't think if you've had two decades of this, you can just snap out of it. It's going to take some time. Does that answer the question? Great. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Have you found it to be um, when people go through this program and they discuss things with their family that they found out that maybe, um, for instance, a young man, maybe his father experienced the same thing? Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes that draws them in. And that what? Maybe sometimes that draws that person into the program also. We have, we have dads and sons in the program, yes. And, and there is a generational curse. There is no question about that. Our goal, isn't it, to, to break that curse at whatever level we're at. And my dad, you know, imparted this to me, and I assume his dad imparted it to him, both the anger rage and the sex thing because my my dad's dad was a, a, a raving alcoholic and um, it's a horrible story about the way he abused his wife and my dad wouldn't even attend my grandfather's funeral Re- flat refused hated him and there was a time in my life when I hated my dad and if he'd walked through my bedroom at about the age of 13 I had a baseball bat, and I was determined I will kill him if he walks through this door. The rage I felt toward him was so immense. So there is a generational curse with all these sins. I totally agree with that, and it's one of the reasons I got into it. I mean, gee whiz, he he had it hidden under the T-shirts of his closet. How hard could that be to find? And that launched me into my uh, addictive behaviors around sex. But I can tell you this, I'm, I'm working hard to break that generational curse, and that's what all of us need to do. Whatever it takes, we've got to work to break it. The stuff we're talking about tonight, the, the hours that we're spending here talking about this and the effort we're going through to write books and read books and, and sit and listen and talk and pose questions and think about recovery, oh, man, it's worth it because we've got, we got a generation of people to save out there. We've got to snatch them out of the fires, it says in Jude 23. Save some, snatching them out of the fire. That's what, we got to snatch these guys out of the fire. I'm proud to tell you that, that my own boys are in this program. Just like your, 
your young men are serving with you. Two of your three sons are here leading worship. And man, they're beautiful boys. I mean, gosh, anyone would be proud of those boys. Right, Carol? Yeah. I mean, you've you got to give me an amen on that one. Right? Yeah. I got, I got three sons and four daughters. And I'll tell you, my sons, I, am, I'm just, I just think they're the best things in the world. And uh, all three of them are in 423 men. Can you imagine? My son-in-law. My favorite daughter's husband. <laughs> no, I got three, four favorite daughters. He's in the program. He's, a, he's an attorney, and he's, he's working this program, and he's helping men. He's a leader. My other son's a leader. Stanford, uh, Eric, is um, a member. And my 18-year-old boy, Robert, is leading the 18-year-old, 14 to 18-year-old charge. I'm just proud of these kids. I think that's one way to help them break the generational curse. Take a stand. Be strong. Do something forceful and strong and dynamic and believe in what you're doing. And these, uh, this next generation um, may just follow. I hope that helps. Yes, Harold. I had a question. John? Okay. Um, if obviously the program is for people who are currently struggling with addiction, are there ways that someone could help that maybe wouldn't normally, you know, that wouldn't be currently struggling but yet would want to reach out and help? You said that your 18-year-old son is leading the, the young man's uh, group. Um, how does that work? Are there opportunities there? The short answer is no. Uh, it's a great question. But addicts are best equipped to help addicts. If I get someone in there who is uh, top-down, then there's going to be an automatic sense of holier than thou. doesn't matter what you say. Oh, I, I can really relate to you. I used to have a problem of, with uh, uh, eating too much, or I had a problem with this or that, and um, so I, I know I can relate to you. Well, that's not true. Unless you've been broken in this particular arena, you, you, really don't, you can't offer much. Now, there's a lot of ways you can help. You can donate. You can buy books. You can spread the word. Um, but in a recovery setting, my, all my kids have struggled. So this is the generational curse. They've all struggled with sexual temptation. But the cool thing in my family is my sons will tell me about it. They'll tell me every time they masturbate. They tell me any time they look at porn. Uh, my 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 18-year-old boy, he's never even looked at porn. My others have. And we have open discussion about this. And there's never any shame. And I always ask them, well, why do you think you did that? What would cause you to want to do that? What do you, what do you think? Well, it's kind of related to my procrastination or this financial problem or I got an argument with my wife. It's wonderful. I mean, just the communication. But because they struggle they get to be a part of this program. If they didn't, they'd have to help financially or in other ways administratively, but not directly in a group. Does that help, Harold? I can tell you most men have struggled with this. So at one point or another in their lives, it could come back, and if it ever does, get into group. Yep. I, uh, I, I want to say along. <laughs> I got to share it really short. There was a pastor on television 
that was talking about breaking bondage one time. And he was going to break the news to his large congregation. And this is what he said. He says, folks, I need to share something. But God healed, restored, raised me up. And everybody's waiting to hear what the problem was. And he says, I had a problem with biting my fingernails. That was his problem. (laughs) Now, the reason I say that is what he was doing was just trying to and guess what that's that's the level of, or the depth that you were going to deal with your congregation cuz i i personally believe if it doesn't start with the pastor or the father and, and you correct me if it doesn't start with opening up here it's not going to open up down here that's true and if all you're talking about in your, I'm I'm the end of the baby boomer generation. And back in the baby boomer, we didn't talk about our problems. We held them inside. Right. Men did especially. Yeah. We don't talk. You know what we did was we we stone you. You sin. We need to have a court church, and let's kick <laughs> this guy out of the church. He sinned. What happened to Galatians six one and two? If a brother be overtaken in a trespass, take him out and stone him. It says, restore them in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself. You which are spiritual, restore. There have been some of us have been hurt by pastors, leaders, and other Christians, and because of secrecy, because pastors, fathers, there's been things I've shared with my sons, wasn't wasn't happy about, but I, I needed to do it. Let me tell you why it's important to do this. People will never run to the throne of grace for mercy unless they've seen mercy shown to you. That's why I believe God chose an apostle Paul who said, I'm the chief of sinners. God chose him because there was there's the shame, there's the secrecy. Paul was coming to the light. He was bringing things out. Now I'm not I'm not suggesting, and I don't think pa- pa- Pastor Dave is saying that you have to be a heroin addict to deliver a heroin addict. We're not saying, uh, Harold, in your question, that you have to be a porn addict to help a porn addict. I I do believe that you can be a friend. You can encourage them. Mm -hmm. You can be a blessing. But they may not really open up to you if you've not. You know one thing I've learned? I've learned not to give counsel to people that I've not walked in their shoes. Do you understand what I just said there? I don't care if I'm a pastor or not. If I haven't walked in their shoes, my counsel, I can give them scripture and some hope and vision. I'll support you. But I've learned that my counsel goes about this far because I haven't been where they've been. I haven't suffered where they're. Like he lost his wife, and he's gone through a grieving time. I am not going to do very well in giving this guy counsel. Dave, I know you lost your wife a year and a half ago. You're a man of God. Wise up. You're a son. You're a hero. You're a champion. That's going to do. I had one guy once say to me, kid you not, 
kid you not, I was standing there with our pastor, who's, I, my wife died maybe two months earlier. He was trying to relate to me. He was standing with the pastor and me, and of course my pastor was very loving and understanding. This, this guy says, oh man, yeah, I just recently, I know how you feel, I lost my dog. It was just the hardest <laughs> thing ever. And I looked at him and I just, I almost cracked up. I almost just blurted out laughter. <laughs> so that proves the point. You can't really understand what someone's walked through until you walk through it. Yeah. Nicely said. He didn't mean anything by it. He was just being stupid. So I just forgave him. <laughs> and, and by the way, yeah, it, it, it is important to show support and love. And you could, you could just say, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm here for you. But... I, I, can I just say one thing? Uh, even though I'm pastor uh, 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 in this church, there are people at New Life, uh, New Life, Open Heavens, they don't open up to me. They would rather open up to somebody else in the church. And you know what? That's okay. Uh, it can be a title, a position. They're not a, they don't feel free. I'm not intimidated because they didn't come to the pastor. That's that is so. I love your pastor. That is so insecure, <laughs> and it's sad. But they may go to someone else who's walked through some deep suffering that will actually give far greater compassion, far greater understanding, deeper insight because they've walked through something, and uh, that I haven't walked through. By the way, the pastors are not the answer man. Uh, they're not the best preacher. They're not the wisest man. That's that's not why we're here. That's not what we're what we're all about here. Anyone else have any questions, Dave? Uh, going back to what you were talking about with uh, the porn industry having a market, that because there is a market for it, because there is a uh, there is a, a demand, there is a supply. Uh, my question to you is, is um, with that example, I, I look at, I, I look at example like that, and I start to cross apply that to things in history. I look at like rock music. Hmm. Sixty years ago was like was the porn of its day. Hmm. It was dirty. It was rotten. It was sinful. And if you had that album in your car, it was poison. You were, man, it was, if you had drums on stage, you're a outcast church. You know, kind of, it was that style of thinking. However, there was a shift, and they started to see a beauty yeah. that God was doing in something. And then after a while, it started to assimilate in the culture. And now you can't go into a church unless there's a drum kit or yeah. electric guitars or things yeah. like that. And I'm saying is that, that there was a revelation that came to the body of Christ about something that was glorifying God. There was something that wasn't, but there was, there was a version of it that was. And there was a spirit behind it. So with there being a... a very demonic and out of the pit of hell spirit that is in the porn industry. Mm -hmm. What is that in the healthy part of that that glorifies the Lord that the body of Christ can exalt? Because 
you didn't talk about sex in church growing up. And I think that perpetuates shame yeah. in the church. Because of the isolation. Because of the isolation. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I went to a youth camp, and one of the speakers talked about sex, and one of our guys wrote down every time. He put a jot every time, and he like, the guy's had sex tonight 34 times. <laughs> and it was like, wow, you never hear about it. How, how do you create a healthy culture of talking about sex to where, I mean, you're as free as, you know, we read the book of Song of Solomon. Oh yeah, that is not a P, that is not a rated G book. No, and yet when people get together and oh you, you're going to quote that there's a shame, but yet he felt the freedom to share some pretty darn intimate experiences. So how do you migrate a person from the place they're in of addiction to the place of health? I love that question. You sh- again proud of your son. That's a beautiful, beautiful question. And I have a a chapter uh, 10, the last chapter in the book, called A New Passion. It does include uh, the vision for killing porn, but it begins with a subtitle called The Beauty of a Woman. I mean, let's face it. A beautiful woman is a sight to behold. There's nothing more beautiful on earth to a, a typical man than the beauty of a woman. Okay? This is the way God made us. And we need to learn how to behold God's creation with integrity, with honesty, with sincerity, and with respect. So I'd love you to read that first part of that chapter and see if you agree. But for me, it's all, and it's on a little graph that I put here, it's all about migrating from being an idolater to being a real, true human, um, to being of the world, to being um, uh, in the world. We are in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. To move away from sexualizing women to noticing her. There's nothing wrong with noticing a beautiful woman or a man. Um, lust for her as a sex object, to look at her as a friend. To mentally undress her, to appreciate her beauty. You see, there is a transition. And our integrity demands that we can't put burkas over our every woman on earth, right? We can't put blinders on. A beautiful woman will, will cross my path of vision. I need to treat her and look at her with respect. Say, oh, a beautiful thing God has made. A beautiful creation. Just leave it at that. She's not mine. So to respect the beauty... I can either desire her for my own or just simply acknowledge her beauty, fantasize about her, or recognize the reality of her allure and leave it at that. Obsess on her beauty or credit God for her beauty. Deify her or simply look at her as a sister. That is a magnificent question you pose. And yes, there's nothing wrong with the beauty of a woman. And there's nothing wrong with noticing taking it too far easy to do do you also um when you talk about I, you haven't mentioned the graduation part but people obviously go into yeah, yeah they do and graduate then, and then they graduate my question is this I, I kind of equate it to someone who enters into you know you you and you join a gym and you have some serious health issues 
and maybe you're you're obese, you're overweight, and you need to get on a program, and you need a community of people to help you attain the goal of health. Yes, exactly. Um, That's there, a great illustration. There is there is a point where you become like zero neutral, where you're 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 you've lost the fat. Okay, you're you're at this place, but then there is the the plus side where you start making you start getting your gains. You start yeah. becoming, you know, you start be looking fit and ripped and, and gaining that physique. So my question is, like, when they graduate, do they graduate into something mm -hmm. that continues to facilitate the community that brought them that far? Because if they graduate, I would think if they graduate out of the process, you're just like, okay, you don't need the gym anymore. You know, no. Now I have somewhere else to go. There's a there's a new glory for me to go yeah. to from here. Is there something yeah. that happens post graduation? Yeah, and grad, let's uh, define graduation. It's not uh, finishing a particular curriculum because, as we've said, it's not curriculum driven. It's a uh, program that uh, has lots of curricula, and we just go through them until a guy feels like he's ready to graduate, and that's typically three to five years for most guys. But what do they graduate? They don't graduate from, they graduate to. I think that's what you're saying. What do they graduate to? And uh, the answer we've come up with is they graduate to greater service in the local church and in the community. And that can be, now they are, uh, here's the amazing thing. We, these, these men of God are, are in the church and they're, ooh, excuse me. <laughs> uh, they're attempting to... Um, stay under the radar because of the sin and they're feeling ashamed of themselves and it's very, very hard for them to step into leadership roles. When they start getting free, they now learn to uh, acknowledge themselves as men of God and they, they lose the shame and they start actually serving in the body of Christ in profound and significant ways. So our pastors love this program because they say, Dave, you've, one, you've saved us hundreds of hours of pastoral care and, and, and uh, crisis counseling <laughs> because these guys are taking care of themselves and you're helping them do that. Uh, and two, they're some of our best leaders. If you were to look at our typical uh, demographic in 423 Men, these are, the, these are the powerful men in our church. When men of good repute come into this program who've struggled, uh, there's a shift, a cultural shift from the stigma that was attached to this ministry early to, hmm, these are men in 423. These are the guys that are really fighting for purity, unlike all these other guys over here. Okay? Even wives look at their a husband's involvement. took several years to get there, but they see it as a badge of honor. They're fighting for purity. We've had pastors, pa staff pastors in our program. We've got a couple pastors in the program right now who struggle with this, but uh, aren't being shamed and kicked out of the church. They're dealing with it. So they're considered men of honor. Okay, so where they graduate is to greater levels of leadership in the community and in the church because their self-confidence and their self-image is strong now like it wasn't when they felt ashamed of themselves. Or sometimes they stay in the program. I got some guys who call themselves lifers. Dave, I'm going to be in this program forever. And they turn into leaders. These are the guys that are leading the others. And it's, we got 45 leaders in our program, and we meet with them every single month, and it's, it's powerful. Um, does that help to answer the question? They've got to graduate to something. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I've I, I got to say something here. 
uh, I'm going to do a little bragging. I've lost 27 pounds. <laughs> now, That's amazing. I, 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 wanna, I, I have a reason as a follow-up with David's question about this thing called graduation. When I started my diet change in lifestyle, th- thanks to Mike Riga and Gina and others. That, but let me, let me tell you this. I thought that by losing certain amount of weight, I would reward myself with a can of Coca-Cola. I rewarded myself by, now I can go back and buy a half a dozen donuts. But to me, graduation is when I come to the point where I'm actually wanting to eat the right thing. I'm wanting. My wife knows it. My wife knows it. Every day, I'm doing my two-mile walk, eating my vegetables, doing those things. To me, graduation is that you love the right thing. You know you love it, and you hate the wrong thing. To me, and, and it, yeah, I, I don't know if it, graduation is even a term, but yeah. but to me, the transformation is that God has so changed your mind, renewed your mind, and we need to encourage people that they can be changed. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think that is is the key because we always look at, well, what do I got to do to get over the addiction? <laughs> when I tell people, or when they ask that question like that guess what? They're not interested in getting over their addiction. Because when all you're thinking about is, what do I got to give up? You're not serious about restoration. But when you move beyond what I have to do to what I get to do, that is a key really right there. I get to go walk two miles every day. Now, there's pain Especially on a 10-degree incline. By the way, I'm not trying to brag here. But I, I just, I, I've learned in my brain to change my mind about sugar and some things that I'm eating. Uh, I also have to thank uh, my sister Candace back here for put something in my hands, uh, some vitamins that was phenomenal stuff. But when you know when you're feeding your body right, I mean you're going to start seeing some amazing things start coming out of it. And to me, it's it's the reward is not well, okay. I'm going to go back out and uh, just pork out on sweets. <laughs> By the way, I, I I did have a donut this morning uh, at uh, at church. But you know it's amazing how your taste begins to change. I can't even sip a Coca Cola. And I believe that ha- – now, I, I don't know if that relates to porn or not, mm-hmm. but because because we are sexual creatures. Yeah. And sex is good. Er- right. Everyone say that with me. Sex, sex is, is good. good. Amen, it's brother. It's not dirty, it's not bad, and it's not evil. But it has boundaries. We need to recognize those yep. boundaries. Sex is not even, and that's sad to say. When my son was asking about growing up at the church about rock music and all this, I grew up thinking sex is evil. Do you know what it did? It drove me to it. (laughs) 
How many of you know what the law is? Thou shalt not what? All the thou shalt nots. Yep. What did it do with Adam and Eve? It drove them right to the tree that God told them to stay away from. And when you, when all you do is set up thou shalt nots in your home, you will not do that and you will not. But you don't begin to bring them Jesus and feed life and the grace of God and identity and, and, and the love of God and empower people with confidence. All you're doing is setting them up for a fall. I found out, that, I, I hate to say it, but in my earlier years of ministry, I, I'd, I'd get on people and say, what did you do that for? So you fell again, huh? You blew it again? Well, get, enjoy the consequence. <laughs> really did a lot of good to bring change, though. Because you know what? It only drew, drew what it did is it, it, it drove them deeper into secrecy of their problem because they were afraid of me. I wasn't giving them any hope. And it wasn't doing them any good. You know, I, I love what Jesus does. Jesus is such a power. When, when, when people were messed up, tripped up, fell, Jesus came along and he embraced them. And he loved them into to recovery and health. And he, he was the true shepherd, a true father. And that's what we need in the church today. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you, Ray. Good word. I think that... Uh, I pray for those in the sex industry that they will come across somebody who has been saved, delivered. You know, there's many ministries out there where there's women that go back after they've been set free from that lifestyle, and they go back and they bring others out because it's the people that are uh, involved in this. Um are miserable most of them and their lives aren't they don't have joy and i I know in brother uh, benny perez's church there is a a woman who has been totally set free and she goes back into the industry and has a remarkable ministry helping women to get free and and uh, god uses her in a mighty way so it's not just uh praying for um those that are involved in the industry and that, you know, like uh, protesting and whatever, but it's also praying that God will use those that have been set free to go back and help others get free. Yeah, what a good word. Because um, these, are, these are precious human beings. Oh. I've, I've seen some videos, and it just these poor girls who are coming out of the sex trade, they're... Uh, they can't get jobs because it, the word gets out. They can't teach children. Uh, they can't. Uh, there's so many things that they're limited to, and they're seen as sex objects the rest of their lives. They can't shake it, and it's a it's a horrible, horrible uh, thing that can happen. I'm not that person to go help them, but I can pray that the Lord will help. Yeah. You know this this woman that is I don't know her name, but. Yeah. Do you remember that ministry? Uh, anyway, it's just powerful how God opens doors, and uh, and she's going to be a tool to help break the powers of Satan in people's lives. So, thank you. By the way, I've sat up here a long time, and uh, 
you guys probably need to get to bed. Let me, uh, I'll field any questions you have. I'll stay as late as you want. We do have, but if, if uh, I, I don't need to talk anymore. If I've pretty well um, given everything I have to give. If there's something else you want to ask, I'm happy to try. But uh, um, we're going to meet tomorrow, some of the guys and then also some of the women. I'll be meeting with, um, um, so any of you that are interested in that, uh, please uh, put your uh, piece of paper. Did you collect the paper? Okay, thank you, Harold. Uh, just put your name and number on it, and I'll contact you, and we'll I'll let you know when we're meeting. You can be a part of that. The um, It'll be a, a group of uh, uh, or the women with uh, Carol and me and the guys with uh, me and Ray. So the only other thing is if you like the book, I'd like to go home with no books. I think I sent 30 here. There was about a dozen here when I got here tonight. So um, if you like the book, well, let's scratch that. Even if you don't like it, would you buy it? <laughs> I'm kidding. Just uh, we have them there, $10. If you've marked in it, you own it, give me 10 bucks. If you haven't marked in it, you're free to just leave it on the uh, um, chair here. But I'd, I'd like you to take it. I'd like you to share it with someone. I'd like you to read it. I think there's some, some good material there. Okay? So. Let's give it a hand, Thank you, Ray. Why not? Let, let's stand to our feet. We're going to close. We're, we're going to pray over Dave. Thank you. And, and, and his ministry. And just going back to Beaverton. Uh, again, I, we, just one real quick reminder. Feel free to call Carol or myself if you'd like to set up a time. Uh, tomorrow, he'll be here all day. Remember, there is no prayer tomorrow night because we're probably going to be meeting here in, the, in our home or the church. Uh, so... Uh, feel free to call us if you'd like to meet. And by the way, meeting doesn't necessarily mean you have a problem. Uh, maybe there are some other questions that you have about this that you didn't ask. So, uh, but 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 he is going to be sharing about. Yeah, they, he, they didn't call me. They didn't call you. We're all on the. Uh, yeah. Ray and Carol and I are working very closely together on this. So yeah. it doesn't matter who you call. And it's uh, all confidential. Yeah. We keep the names in confidence. So. Uh, but he is going to be sharing about 423 community more mm -hmm. about that and where we're mm -hmm. going on that tomorrow. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this ministry. We thank you, Lord, for directing our steps together. Lord, we thank you that you've done amazing work uh, through this man and even the suffering and the things he's walked through and the things all of us have walked through. But, Lord, you've anointed him, equipped him, Thank Lord, you, instructed him in the way of wisdom, Lord, so that people can truly be free and people can experience the grace and God's glory in their life once again. Father, we just we thank you that there is therefore no condemnation yes. to them you, that are in Christ. That's right. That's right. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. And I, I just pray, Lord, that you'd put your... Uh, blood covering around this man and keep him, Lord, as he is serving you. I know right now Satan would love to set this man up as a target Thank to you, bring Jesus. him down uh, because of the uh, breakthroughs and the victories that are coming through hundreds and thousands of lives. We pray that this book will be a seed that will be sown in the kingdom that would be used for the furtherance of the kingdom Thank and setting Jesus. others free.
Lord, we just pray that you give him strength. We ask you, Lord, right now that you would just continue to bless. Thank you, Jesus. Let favor, the favor of God rest upon him in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God Amen. bless you. Thank you, church. Thank you, church. You're a good church. Much.